Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. The Gaiety Theatre Dublin, late 1970s. I was 14. As the lights dimmed, actor Neil Tobin shuffled onto the stage. He paused, hands deep in his pockets, and turned to look out over the audience. In the seat next to me, I heard my mother Beatrice's sharp intake of breath. When the show was over and we were backstage with a drink, she explained her reaction. It's just frightening the way he has Brendan's mannerisms so perfectly. It shocks me every time he walks onto the stage. It's like Brendan has come back to us. The play was Borsal Boy, my father Brendan Behan's autobiographical account of his arrest in Liverpool at the age of 16 while on a doomed IRA mission to blow up Camel Laird shipyards. The three-year sentence he served in Hollisley Bay, Borstal, was to shape his future. His writing talent was nurtured by the governor and he later used to say he'd attended the poor man's public school. Brendan married my mother Beatrice in 1955, having met her five years earlier at her parents' house. My grandfather, the painter, Cecil French Solkeld, used to collect artists and writers at the various Dublin pubs he frequented and bring them back to the family home in Donnybrook, much to the bemusement of my strict German grandmother Irma, who disapproved of alcohol. By the late 1950s, Brendan was the toast of Broadway and the West End of London with his plays The Queer Fellow and The Hostage. But by the time I was born in 1963, my father was seriously ill, a victim of his own success. He died aged just 41 from a combination of diabetes and alcoholism when I was six months old. Growing up, I gradually became aware of his legacy and shadowy presence in our lives. When I made my first communion, my white, veiled face stared back at me from the front of the evening press. Blonard's Day proclaimed the headline. A few years later, his short story, The Confirmation Suit, was on the curriculum at school. I don't recall either my fellow pupils or teachers ever mentioning my connection, but I loved the story and I was proud of my father nonetheless. At rare family gatherings with my father's side of the family, old Dublin ladies would pat me on the head and say sadly, God love you, child. She lost your da. He was awful young. To me, at the age of seven or eight, 41 seemed ancient. Sure doesn't everyone die at 41, I wondered. Photographs of my father and me together are rare, and in those we have, I'm usually crying. His special name for me was Miss Mouse. In the final weeks of his life, he spent more time away than at home. When he returned to our house in Anglesey Road, after the pubs closed, he would usually have an entourage in tow. Where's Miss Mouse? he'd say to my mother. Can I show her to the lads? My mother stood firm. Brendan, it's eleven o'clock at night. I'm not waking her up. You can't do that with babies. Sometimes my mother would take me to see my grandmother. Brendan's formidable mother, Kathleen, in the nursing home where she spent the final months of her long life. She was a widow of the 1918 flu epidemic with two small children when she married my grandfather, Stephen. They went on to have five more children, including my father, Brendan. Would you like a drink, Kathleen? my mother would ask, having smuggled in a nagging of whisky, such luxuries being forbidden to the over-90s on health grounds. 
throw it into me, my grandmother would growl from under the covers and add to me, and come and give your granny a kiss. As I grew older, we attended first nights of plays in Dublin and London and the unveiling of a plaque in Russell Street, my father's childhood home, although by then the house was long gone. The Dublin of my youth was very different to the Dublin of his day. Despite the books, the TV and radio recordings, he was still a distant figure in my life. Familiar, yet a stranger. I examined photos for a hint of a likeness. Joan Littlewood, the legendary theatre director, in whose hands his play The Hostage won numerous accolades, told me I had his eyes. My teenage years were a bit wild. Perhaps some part of me was trying to emulate his lifestyle and hard drinking. But eventually I grew up, and like many of my generation, I took the well-trodden path to England for better opportunities than the Ireland of the 1980s could offer me. It was never my intention to stay, but thirty-odd years later, I'm still here. To people in England, the name Behan means little. After my mother died and our home in Anglesey Road was sold, my visits home became rare, and the ghost of my father, so it seemed, hovered less at my shoulder. But then I had children of my own, and I wanted them to understand their heritage. Once again, I felt the tug of connection with my past, stronger now. On the 50th anniversary of my father's death in 2014, we encouraged our sons to write to on post to ask if they would consider issuing a stamp in my father's honour. At the launch, months later, elderly Dubliners came up to shake my hand and tell me their stories of meeting my father in a pub back in the day. Today, when people ask what I miss most about Ireland, the thing that springs to mind is the sea. It dawned on me some time ago that if there was something I inherited from my father, it was, ironically perhaps, a love of water. In Borstal Boy, my father sings, The sea, or oh the sea, is Grogal McCree. There are photographs of him at the Forty Foot, Sea Point, Donegal and Connemara. He had no fear of the sea. He even swam with basking sharks, telling my mother afterwards that their skin was like sandpaper. So a hundred years after his birth, perhaps it's when I'm there, heading out through the waves, that I'm closest to him. I've never swum with basking sharks myself, but I wouldn't rule it out. Chesterton said, God bless the gales of Ireland, the men that God made mad, but all the wars were many and all the songs were sad. <laughs> this song is a favourite song of my father and mother. Uh, the word pogue <laughs> means kiss. Beyond the McCredden's at Owen Dahl's wedding, the lad's got a pair of his own for a reel. Says I buys excuses, his day don't refuse as I play lice and aise, he said, Laddie O'Neill. Then up we got leppin' it, steppin' it, trippin' herself and myself on the back of a door. Till Molly, God bless her, fell into the dresser and I tumbled over a child on the floor. Says ourselves to myself, you're as good as the best. Says ourselves to myself, she's better than our gold. Says ourselves to myself, you're as wild as the rest of them. Catch the necklace, but for time and of old. As down the lane going, I felt my hair growing as young as it was 45 years ago. It was here in this morning I first kissed my stolen. 
a sweet little colleen with skin like the snow. I looked at me woman, the song she was humming was old as the hills, so I gave her a poke. It was like our old courting, half serious, half sporting. When Molly was young and the hoops were in vogue, says herself to myself, you're as good as the best, says herself to myself, you're better not gold. Says herself to myself, you're as wild as the rest of them. Says I catch thee in a sure time and a ball. The American artist Judy Chicago threw caution and the rule book to the winds when she devised her monumental installation, The Dinner Party, back in the mid-1970s. Ignoring rock-solid research from Michigan State University that assures us the optimum number of guests for such social gatherings is somewhere between five and nine, Judy Chicago conceived a dinner party with no fewer than 39 guests of honour and a further 999 subsidiary guests, a nightmare-inducing total of 1,038. As her intention was to produce a piece of female-centred art, highlighting the repeated erasure of women from cultural history, all 1,038 guests are women she considers had an impact on the world. And one of those women is St. Bridget. This enormous piece is housed in the Brooklyn Museum. It consists of three tables, each almost 50 feet in length, arranged in a triangle. Each table contains place settings for 13 women. Some are mythological figures, some historical, others writers or painters. The place settings comprise ceramic cutlery, a porcelain chalice, and, most arrestingly, a 14-inch plate decorated with what the explanatory notice on the wall describes delicately as vulvar forms. The settings sit on runners, embroidered with the name of the guest and a symbol evoking her area of activity. As you enter the room and walk alongside the table closest to you and wonder who exactly Ishtar, Kali and the snake goddess are, your eye, if it's an Irish eye, is suddenly drawn to the far end of the room where you spot a runner decorated with a Celtic cross near the right apex. Hurrying apologetically past Hatshepsut, Judith and Sappho, you feel a surge of patriotic pride when you arrive finally at this place setting and discover it's reserved for none other than the girl from Fahart, our very own Bridget. Like St. Patrick, Bridget came from decent people. Her mother was an O'Connor and her father was a Hawhey, two families that would cross paths again some 1,400 years later, with interesting results. The 7th century writer Cogitosis paints a picture of Bridget as a saintly figure, naturally enough, but not without warmth, and possessed of a very particular set of skills that meant she was exactly the woman you'd want at a dinner party. In addition to being able to produce unending supplies of milk, butter, pork and honey, she also had miraculous access to alcohol. He relates how she was once approached by a group of lepers who were looking for some beer. She had none to hand, but she spotted water nearby 
that had been prepared for baths. She blessed this water and transformed it into the finest beer, which, in the words of Liam de Puer's translation, she drew copiously for the thirsty. Looking along the line of her immediate table companions, you can't help feeling that the luck of the Irish was with Bridget when Judy Chicago allocated her this particular seat. We've all been to social functions where the listless conversation around us that struggles to get off the ground is drowned out by the raucous laughter and thigh-slapping merriment of party animals at the other end of the table. I fear Bridget's Corner could well develop into that mob of unruly revellers. Immediately to her right is Theodora, who has all the makings of a lively dinner companion. Proud of her working-class origins and unapologetic about having engaged in the then disreputable profession of actress, she somehow ended up marrying the Emperor Justinian and playing a large part in the rebuilding of Constantinople. Just across from Bridget, at the adjoining table, easily within shouting distance if the party was getting out of hand, is the even livelier Boudicca, the Celtic warrior queen, who took no nonsense from the Roman invaders of Britain. A few places away is another Irish woman, and, I suspect, another live wire, Petronilla de Meath. She belonged to the household of Alice Kittler from Kilkenny, and along with Alice was accused of witchcraft. Apparently, they developed a magic ointment, which, when applied to broomsticks, enabled them to fly. Now, who wouldn't want to sit beside her? I imagine Bridget asking the quiet Marcella to her left, founder of a monastery, if she wouldn't mind swapping places with Petronilla and telling Boudicca to pull up a chair. And with Bridget's non-stop supply of drink, the dinner party would really take off. This life and soul of the party version of Bridget receives corroboration from Seamus Heaney. In his translation of St. Bridget's Wish, a 10th century poem attributed to her, she prays, I'd like the King of Kings to have the full of a deep bog hole of beer and all of heaven's kith and kin to be drinking out of it forever. To which the only possible response is, Cheers, Bridget. Do you mind if I pull up a chair? Bridget or Biddy was the name most associated with Irish domestic servants in 19th and early 20th century America, whether or not it was their real name. Stereotyped as incompetent and liable to cause havoc in the middle-class homes where they were employed, they were the butt of music hall jokes and cartoons and subject to anti-Catholic and racial prejudice. In a long article entitled The Servant Girl Problem, Published in the Boston Transcript in 1874, 
the well-known author Louisa May Alcott of Little Women fame lamented that For several years, Irish incapables have reigned in our kitchen and general discomfort has pervaded the house. Her most recent Irish serving girl, she went on, was an unusually intelligent person, but the faults of her race seemed to be unconquerable and the winter had been a most trying one all around. My first edict was, Biddy must go. You won't get anyone else, Mum, so early in the season, said Biddy. No Irish need apply, was my answer to the half-dozen girls who, despite Biddy's prophecy, did come to take the place. Whatever about the unconquerable faults of their race, more Irish women than men emigrated in the 19th and early 20th century. Unlike most other emigrants, they didn't usually travel in family groups, but made the journey alone or with a sister or other relative. And at an average age of 21, they were significantly younger than other emigrants. For most Irish women, domestic service was the preferred employment choice. It was relatively well paid and, as living expenses were few, you could save some money. Despite the prejudice, many of the Irish Bridgets managed to pull themselves out of poverty and prosper in their adopted homes. My grandmother... Annie Hughes was one such woman. One of a family of nine girls and two boys brought up on a small tenant farm outside Tume, County Galway. Annie was just 16 and her sister Ella 21 when they set out on their great adventure. I found Annie's name on the Ellis Island website and discovered that she arrived on the 17th of May 1893 aboard the Ancoria, which sailed from Glasgow. It's hard to imagine two young country girls who'd never been in a big city before making such a journey alone, first to Glasgow and then on the long sea voyage. But, as a cousin explained to me, they would have had no choice. They had no money and not a lot of education. There were no jobs and they had no prospect of marrying a farmer without a fortune or dowry, which was about £100 in the late 1890s. £100 was literally a fortune then for the daughters of West of Ireland tenant farmers. In New York, they were met by their aunt, who lived in Brooklyn, and who'd arranged jobs for them in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. During her time in New York, Annie rose from kitchen maid to the position of cook for a wealthy Irish-American family who had one home on Lexington Avenue and another in Palm Beach, Florida, then a newly developed resort. Evidently a far cry from the Irish incapables, as described by Louisa May Alcott, Annie and Ella prospered, and by 1907 had saved enough money to return to Ireland on holiday after 14 years in America. They stayed in Salt Hill, Galway, then, as now, a seaside resort. I imagine the two tall, good-looking sisters, now in their thirties, cutting a dash with their American clothes, possibly American accents too, and probably, most important of all, their financial independence. During that fateful holiday, Annie went to visit a matchmaker and was introduced to my grandfather, a shopkeeper. They walked out by Loch Corrib, and when they returned, it was all settled, goes the story, passed on by my mother. A postcard from my grandfather, Michael McDonough, 
to Annie, miraculously survives. The nearest thing to a love letter, it's addressed to Miss A. Hughes Salthill. On the front, there is a coloured picture of the Gap of Dunlow Killarney, with the barefooted Colleen, Kate Carney, in traditional dress. And on the back, Michael has written. Akushla. Please accept this album and cards as a small token of the esteem which a slight acquaintance has some way strangely developed and which I sincerely hope our next meeting will cement. With kind regards, M. MacD. Despite urgent letters from her former employer, Mrs O'Neill, pleading with her to return, Annie never went back to New York. She accepted Michael's marriage proposal and they were married that November in Berkeley Road Church, Dublin. I'm a simple Irish girl and I'm looking for a place. I felt the grip of poverty, but sure that's no disgrace. It will be long before I get one, though indeed it's hard I try. For I read in each advertisement, no Irish need apply. Alas for my poor country, which I never will deny. How they insult us when they write, no Irish need apply. I was at the funeral recently of the fearless playwright and lovely woman Joe Egan in Dardistown Cemetery near Dublin Airport. Before I left, I walked through the cemetery and visited the grave where my father was buried 20 years ago. Dad spent most of his life working as an air traffic controller in Dublin Airport. He and his colleagues took great care in keeping us all safe as we headed off and returned from our journeys. I love the fact that you can see and hear the airplanes landing and taking off so close to you when you visit his grave. You can also see the cemetery out of the window as you fly in and out of Dublin Airport. The original terminal building was built in 1940 and designed to look like an ocean liner. Originally the runways were grass and they were replaced with concrete ones by 1948. A few years later Dad started working there. He and Mum got married and moved to Dublin in 1958, having both worked previously in Shannon Airport. They bought a house in Glasnevin and there were no other buildings at the time between their home and the airport. No Ballymun flats, just fields between their house and what was then called Collinstown. Dad cycled to work and often worked late. My sister and I loved hearing the story of how, when he was about to leave the airport, without a phone in the house at the time... He'd turn on the beacon light at the top of the control tower to let my mother know he was on his way. I was always struck by how calm and reassuringly in control he and his colleagues were, contrary to the way air traffic controllers are often portrayed in airplane disaster movies. The pattern of his shift work, late, early, night, rest, rest, meant that at weekends he was sometimes working or sleeping after a night shift. But then he might be off work on weekdays during school holidays when my friend's parents were working and we would head to the beach or to the zoo and have the place to ourselves. So, as I stood looking at Dad's headstone recently, I read again the lines engraved on it. They're from a poem written when Dad died by my friend, the writer Gavin Costick. The lines have since been borrowed for other funerals by other families of air traffic controllers. 
And it's lovely to think that the poem celebrates the life of someone very special and the job that he did so close to where he now lies. For Liam Culleton, Dublin Airport, by Gavin Costick. If the story of the newlyweds is true, he was able to signal from the control tower across the green fields of small-town Dublin to where his wife in Glasnevin waited for her man to come home. The great swarming grounds of Hoth and Malahide, where geese make themselves fat for flight, we have imitated here, and spun out in a concrete hub of circling worlds, of leavings and arrivals. Don't fear the shock of aircraft will break his rest. He took this place for his, and he knew best. He has chosen to lie down where the tear of aircraft overhead sing like swallows over an infant's bed. Where he guided safely, let him now be held safe. Where the runway lights made a street to step down from the air, let the stars in their firmament now make him a pathway to the night. He was a great man, and we should not be scared to say so. He was warm, and warmth came to him. He was curious, and thought came to him. He loved, and love, love on love, came racing to him. And if his greatness was carried easily, like so much small change in a hip pocket, we should know it to be the greater, not the less. And at the end of his days, he has chosen to lie down where the wheel of aircraft overhead sing like swallows over his cradle bed. St. Bridget. Those holy faith sisters were all about her. St. Bridget this and St. Bridget that. Little did they know, she was our first lesson into the ungodly, pure goddess, power of girls and certain kinds of women. I can still see us young ones leaning out over the talca to grab at bulrushes. Those teachers from Mother of Divine Grace had no idea how close their pupils came to drowning. Except for Lisa Martin holding on to the scruff of me jumper, I would have gone under. It figured. Our biddy could do tricks with her cloak, but fingless girls had a knack with riverbank roots and not letting go of a pal. In the rare quiet of our classroom, I watched me school pals twist and turn the still malleable stems of bulrushes into a protective charm for each of our homes. I got it then, the faith women and girls place in one another.
The first day of February was the day I enjoyed most in my last years at primary school. Our teacher for fifth and sixth class in Strokestown's convent was Sister Bridget. And on February the 1st, we celebrated the feast day of the saint named for her, as I thought. We had chocolate, sweets and the treat of art and craft day with no homework. Our Bridget the nun was a compassionate woman ahead of her time, empowering all of us young girls to have dreams and ambition. Each of us felt we were special to her. Her love of words lives on in me to this day. Descriptive passages from the books she recommended us to read were transcribed and collected in copies. She swooped us up and away to the slopes of Heidi's Alps, where a soft, light morning breeze blew deliciously across the mountain, gently stirring the bluebells that still remained of the summer's wealth of flowers, their slender heads nodding cheerfully in the sunshine. Overhead, the great bird was flying round and round in wide circles. Heidi looked about her first at one thing and then at another. Her eyes were alight with joy and our eyes would light up too. Through Sister Bridget's patient repetition, we learned the list of sugar factories in Ireland, the declension of Irish verbs, and the strange names of the deserts of Africa. We accompanied all the cattle home with Mary on the sands of Dee. The pockets of her habit and the shelves of her expansive desk held cures and treats from a curachrome for the grazed knees to a clove drop for the tights that would need darning and the pictures and quotes on little cards she had stashed for special moments. Her wise, maternal manner held sway at a time when punishment was often in store elsewhere. And the name Bridget, bestowed on her as she was professed back in 1937, was aptly chosen. At a time when women played a subservient role in church and state, her dedication to her sisterhood in the Mercy Convents of Elphin Diocese and her natural talent for teaching ensured that those who took refuge in her long black habit found nourishment for the soul and the mind. In her more pensive moments she sat, hands together, kneading her palms in a circular fashion. When I returned to school after my tenth birthday, following my father's funeral, the comfort of those hands and her gentle company steadied me. In the years that followed, I often skipped from the adjoining secondary school into the yard where she was overseeing her latest brood of lucky girls, just to stand in her presence. Her assurance settled my sometimes shaky self. We never knew how she spent her summer holidays, except for the pilgrimage that all nuns made to Mullochmore for the sea air. Last year I visited the Garden of Peace, created beside the convent there, and I pictured her walking the paths, reciting her prayers and taking in the sounds of the sea, sky and nature. I wondered was she lonely when the stretch of summer days meant all her children were far away from her, another batch of them moving on to secondary school. When I grew up, 
I left Strokestown and so did she. I'd occasionally visit the parlour of her newest convent home. Every St. Bridget's Day I sent wishes her way. We exchanged Christmas cards for many years. She was a guest at my wedding, but sadly only lived a few years after that and died in 1990. At least once a year I make a detour on my road trips to walk the shrub-lined path into the nun's graveyard, not far from the Shannon in Summerhill, Athlone. All the crosses are lined up in rows, inscribed with the names of generations of nuns. There's a serenity to the place, and in some sense I feel the assurance that Sister Bridget, a powerful teacher and kindest of women, is still in my corner. Every St. Bridget's Day, I'll fold my rushes into the traditional shape of the St. Bridget's Cross and I'll hang a scarf out for my broth to be blessed. I'll send a wish that the pupils crossing thresholds into classrooms will be greeted by a teacher with eyes that are kind, a head bursting with words and the ability to open the door to life's wonder through learning. Cowan multiplida in yan eve heran in yan legatiri malamishkoeri Lachren galalainach soesche farnetiru Kiaun eroyakteran Kiaun A Swallow's Nest A swallow's nest, a bitter day and bleak. And still this empty nest speaks only of the summer yet to be. Set hard against the wintry wall on this high house, it rides the storms and holds its place. Its breach looks south, towards the snowy mountain open always for the great return. And so it is with us. We see another winter through and look ourselves towards the better, brighter days to be. On this morning's programme we heard Familiar Stranger by Blanad Bean. St Bridget, the ideal dinner guest, was by Connell Hamill. The Irish Bridgets by Maureen O'Malley. Sing Like Swallows was by Jim Cullerton. St. Bridget, a poem by Rachel Hegarty. Sister Bridget, a Saint in My Life by Noel Linsky. And A Swallow's Nest, a poem by John McKenna. The music this morning was Haste to the Wedding, sung by Brendan Bean. The Kitchen Set by the Henry Girls. No Irish Need Apply, sung by the Cincinnati University Singers. Nocturne number 12 in G major by John Field, played by Veronica McSweeney. Irina Grena by Steve Cooney. And lastly, Ode to St. Bridget by Blanche Rowan and Mike Gulston. And you can find out more about RTE's coverage of Brendan Behan's centenary at rte.ie forward slash culture. And there's a special arena programme tomorrow evening at 7pm here on RTE Radio 1.
Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Condon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And if you'd like to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE Radio Player or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and on all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.